Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that you have joined me today. I've got a couple hours of uh, great programming ahead. Guy Talk is going to start in about a minute or so, and then John and Pam Bloom will be with us as well. We call that Deep Thinker Thursday, so looking forward to that. And as always, when Guy Talk happens, uh, you can drive the topics, you can send us subjects, you can ask us to talk about a topic or a verse or something that you've struggled with uh, possibly in Scripture or in your own denomination or whatever it is, we're open to taking your questions at 877-933-2484. The panel today is Dr. Peter Kapsner and uh, Pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish. Pastor Justin Jepson is uh, off today, and uh, we'll have a, a reunion of, of everybody hopefully soon. It's going to be awfully nice to get everyone back together again. Get the band, get the band back together. So let me take a little break and we'll get started. As the world staggers under the weight of a fast-spreading virus, we wonder what we can do and what we should do to help those in need. Medical professionals and first responders are on the front lines of this fight, and countless others are serving heroically as truck drivers, grocery store workers, and nursing home workers. And many ministries are providing creative ways to serve the growing needs of those around us. As believers, we have a unique role to play through prayer. 17th century minister John Bunyan reminds us you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Faith Radio has an online tool available to help us pray effectively and specifically for one another. Prayer works can be found on the front page of our website at myfaithradio.com. Simply click on the link and begin praying for the requests posted from our listening family. And you can submit a request as well, so others can pray for you. Together, we can encourage and lift each other up and share in this important work of prayer. Look for prayer works when you go to myfaithradio.com. All right, welcome to the show. Glad you're with us today. I've got uh, Peter Kapster, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish here with me today. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Thanks Bill. There, Bill. Let me just throw this out for fun. Proverbs 12, uh, verse 28, I read today. This There is life in doing what is right along that path. You will never die. That's kind of nice. I like mm. doing. I like doing what is right. <laughs> Can't always do it, but uh, we try hard, don't we? Yeah. Question is what that means, because sometimes we do die for doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> so. Good point. Good point. All right, I've got a bunch of questions I want to throw at you guys today. Here's one to get things started. How would you explain holiness to someone? Hmm. There's that long, well, awkward pause. <laughs> you know, the word holy is... Hagias, which means set apart. Mm-hmm. And so, like, for instance, there were certain vessels that were set apart only to be used at the temple. Mm-hmm. So that was called a sanctified vase. 
and Christians are now sanctified. We're set apart holy ones. The word saint means holy one. And as a, a Christian, all Christians are saints, and we're set apart from the rest of the world to be holy unto the service of God. So in a nutshell, that's, I think, what holy means. That's a great answer. Are we distinguishable from the rest of the world? I know we should be, but are we? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes when I think of uh, you seeing the Amish, you instantly see them and you instantly identify them and you instantly know how they live and you pretty much know what their their you know their boundaries are. But I wonder mm-hmm. if sometimes if Christians living in the world, do we stand off? Do we stand out and have that distinctiveness apart from the world? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing it up in that way, Bill, and and Tom too, in terms of the standing apart piece of it, because I think maybe one of my first reactions when I hear the word holy is sort of the idea that I have to be spotless and blameless and maybe somehow be able to stand in God's presence. And and I think there's a dimension of holiness that is along those lines. But I, I love the stand apart that is really the heart of that concept of holiness, just meaning that there's there's a different way of life. And, and it always takes me into a place of thinking about it in light of God's kingdom, where you, you can either live in the kingdoms of this world and manifest sort of being a citizen of those kingdoms. And and I think when people travel, and, and if you're an American who's ever traveled abroad, it's kind of interesting, people can peg you pretty quickly as an American, or vice versa, people from other countries might come into your neck of the woods, and you can kind of, you can see that they are part of that country of, of, of which they're a citizen. And, and we're to be citizens of heaven, which means that simply the way we do our lives, hopefully on some level, it would be obvious to the people around us that we're part of a citizenship of heaven. However you want to define that, however you want to think about it, there are ways of life that are consistent with the heavenly kingdom that we are set apart from the kingdoms of this world to manifest. And and so I always thought of holy as sort of this, oh gosh, I'm not holy enough kind of thing. And 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 I again, that's part of the deal, but I think it's much more interesting and intriguing when it's combined with the idea that we're bearing witness in the world to a different kind of kingdom. I heard a long time ago that holiness really means reflection, that the instruments uh, in the temple were not holy in and of themselves. You and I are not holy in and of ourselves, but we reflect the holiness of the Lord himself. The other thing is, I think sometimes we talk about how do we reflect that to the world? I think we got to go back and look at the New Testament. So many times Jesus said something like this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The real love of one another is the witness we're supposed to have to the world, because quite frankly, the world doesn't like what I have to say or you have to say much of the time, because it's contrary to what they want to believe. But if our love is deep enough and our service is deep enough to one another, then they take notice. Good answers, everybody. All right, here's another question that's already come in. Um, This is uh, from um, my wingman, Terry. And he said, uh, today is the nationally recognized Christian holiday Ascension Day. It seems to me not a lot of people are talking about it. wonder if the power panel could discuss why it is important and why it should be celebrated. Well, I'll tell you, Bill, I remember Ascension Day, just for our listeners that might not know what it is, it's the day Jesus bodily ascended back up into heaven. And the disciples saw him go up and disappear in the clouds and they're kind of with their jaw dropped watching this, and two angels show up and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the heavens? 
this Jesus who uh, left will return in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. So the ascension is when the, the apostles visibly saw Jesus go up into heaven, and it's the assurance that one day he's going to visibly return in the clouds at the second coming to raise the dead and, and the world. And why don't we talk about it more? Well, we should. Sadly, this I remember going to a Protestant church years ago for Ascension Sunday, and the preacher got up and said basically his point was, well, of course, we don't take this literally anymore. Jesus didn't float up. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Of course he floated up. And just, you know, sometimes uh, the people that should be preaching on this don't even believe in it. But overwhelmingly, Christians believe in the ascension of Christ. But it's the assurance he's coming back someday in the same way that he went up. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember right, Ascension Day is traditionally 40 days after Easter. Mm -hmm. and, and we're back to those biblical numbers again of 7, 12, and 40 that keep showing up over and over. And so you see this plan throughout Scripture to really show the authority of Jesus. And that uh, I heard one person say it so well once. They said, Jesus lived his life in the way that Israel was meant to live the life for the Lord to be his witnesses. And they also said Israel, or Jesus is Israel, reduced to one person who lived it perfectly and now offers to both Jews and Gentiles the way into the kingdom that only he could perfect. And in terms of ascension, yes, he went back to that place of authority uh, after his resurrection. And like Tom, I believe if we were there, we would literally see him lift off the ground and go into the clouds. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I... I yeah, there's there's not much more I would add to any of that uh, that piece of it. I think just that idea that when Jesus was raised from the dead, I mean Lazarus was also raised from the dead, but Lazarus would have gone on to to again die an, an earthly death. And I think when we see that Jesus is ascending into the heavens, that uh, there's a conquering death dimension that goes along with that, that he didn't need to die again. And uh, and I think that's the great hope that we have uh, that that he demonstrates. And, and Lazarus didn't get his new heavenly body, right? When he was raised out of that tomb, he, you know, sort of tore off the all of the bandages and came out and, and, you know, who knows what he looked like at that point. And did Jesus sort of have to restore him and all of that? But Jesus's heavenly body was not subject to the same rules and regulations of this earth. And, and he could go through walls, he could disguise himself. Uh, it was just an entirely different experience. And so we get that picture of that heavenly body in which then is also the promise that after we do expire from this earth, we will be raised imperishable and no longer subject to death. Great answers. So when I was think, I was reading Acts, and I was coming across the passage in uh, chapter 9 when Peter uh, raises Dorcas from the dead, and you would think, uh, I, don't, I don't hear a lot of teaching about that, and I would think if you were Peter, you know, you're... Uh, your uh, ministry fund uh, fundraising newsletter in the next month would be probably <laughs> pretty powerful. Um, so Peter was given this power to raise someone from the dead. Is is that the only occasion in Scripture apart from um, Jesus? Oh, you mean well, no, well, Lazarus of two, huh? No, 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 and... Jesus. No, besides uh, oh, Jesus, who I raised from the dead. Uh -huh. Was Peter the only other person that raised someone from the dead in Scripture? Well, if you remember in the same book, Acts, 
uh, Eutychus fell asleep during Paul's sermon. Oh, yeah. Remember this? And he falls out yep. of the roof, and he yep. they pick him up as dead. And That's then right. Paul prays Paul over him. Yep. And then there's another passage. And I'm not, well, I'm not sure Paul was dead or was he. I don't. I don't know that it's super clear. But they beat up Paul outside of is it Ephesus and leave him for dead, and then he mm-hmm. gets back up. So, um, you know, there, I, boy, any other instances, guys? I, uh, That's all I can. Yeah. That's what comes to mind right now in the New Testament. I don't know of any others. Although, so, when you travel the world, and I've been very privileged to be to go to India and Bangladesh and Nepal and a lot of those countries, the Christians there talk about this all the time because it's a way of life for many of those people. And I know in one village I was in, uh, one of the people there, one of the uh, real strong witnesses had been beaten to death for sharing his faith about Jesus. And uh, the medical doctors there told me that nine hours later, or six hours later, rather, he came back to life. And they had mm-hmm. never seen anything like that before. And I think that in our Western culture, we, unless we can measure it scientifically, we don't want to believe these things. And yet, yeah. if you read enough of science literature, uh, science literature is now getting into the metaphysical fields because I just read an article where scientists now believe that the universe itself has a conscience and a will. And they don't mean it in just terms of mathematics, but as a living conscience, which is basically getting close to saying there is a God out there. But it's rather interesting how we skirt around this stuff. Yeah. Let me take a little break. Guide Talk is uh, this hour. Let us know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Maybe it's a piece of scripture you've been grappling with for a long time, an issue, a cultural issue. We'll, we'll take, take anything you got. 877-93-FAITH. show guy talk is happening this hour let me know if you've got questions 877-933-2484 dr peter kapsner pastors tom brock tom parish are the power panel today always glad to have them aboard um gentlemen let me ask you this um when you love someone but you hate what's destroying them how is your what do you do to counsel them or support them because we all know people like that and maybe we ourselves have been in a situation that like that i mean i think does some of it depend on what the state of their heart is relative to those things that are destroying them i mean i you know i think if somebody is it's got a a soft heart i I think i'll say it this way i think the difference between a soft heart and a hard heart is not necessarily uh, how free you are from the patterns of sin in your life, but it's the desire for that freedom. And uh, and so those people that have a soft, soft heart may be caught up in destructive behaviors, but really are increasingly and desperately wanting out of that behavior. I, th- I think you walk alongside that person uh, with a bit of grace and mercy and sympathy and understanding and, and try to you know, continue to ask for God's uh, transformative presence in their lives. But But I think when somebody has a hard heart where there's that denial and justification and hiding and and uh, blaming and, and some of those kind of characteristics, it's pretty tough to do anything alongside of them other than to to let them go. And and if they're 
hurting somebody else, then, you know, at that point, of course, you do have to intercede. But, I, you know, I just I don't know of too many circumstances, Bill, and maybe, you know, Tom, uh, Parrish and Brock, you can uh, correct me if, if there's some alternative examples. I just I don't know many circumstances where somebody who really didn't have a soft heart around their change and their ongoing process that, that there's really much you could do then to intercede in their lives. That's a good point. You know, I've counseled with a lot of uh, couples over the years, and especially elderly couples. And probably the biggest heartbreak for me would be to sit with a couple that's maybe in their 60s or 70s. They've got adult grown children who were raised in the church, but have rejected the church or have gone off into a lifestyle that is very destructive. And no matter how much mom and dad pray for them or talk to them about it, they just watch their child going down the tubes. Now, you and I know we give up our life for our children. So it's killing them to watch this. And what do you do when there's not a tender heart? And I know early in my ministry, and did you ever have the Lord just speak through you and you don't know where it came from at the moment, but it sounded good afterward? <laughs> I've had that example happen because I remember with one couple, they said, we've done everything we can. We brought them to church. We, we prayed for them. We've done everything. They're, our son's now 45 years old. He's got his third wife. He's running around on her. There's all kinds of issues. And I said, have you prayed? to give your son over to Jesus and do with him whatever he needs to do short of taking his life. And there was a mm -hmm. dead silence. And mm -hmm. they looked at him and they go, well, no. I said, when you're willing to do that, there may be an opportunity for him to change. And in that case, now I can't say it happens all the time, but in that case, that couple did pray that prayer. And six months later, this son went through a radical spiritual transformation, came back wow. and repented before his parents, repented before everybody had hurt and his life was changed. So I know it does happen, but there are many places where I see Christian parents burden for their kids. And you know what? You're going to carry it to your grave. Instead of doing that, give them over to the Lord because he loves yeah. them more than we do. Mm. Uh, I agree, Tom. We pray God. You know, I've got a list of, of people that I've been praying for for years for their mm -hmm. salvation. And periodically I pray God, do whatever you have to to get these people into the kingdom. Yeah. And even this coronavirus thing, I've been praying, Lord, protect my family and friends. May we not get this. But then I've got to add the prayer. But if this is the way you're going to bring them to Christ, so be it. You know, mm. I'd rather some of my relatives live five days and then spend eternity in the right place than live another 40 years and go to hell for eternity, you know. Mm. So it's a hard prayer to pray, but... Lord, do whatever you have to to save my son, my daughter, my boss, you know, fill in the blank. But uh, it, when we think of all eternity, uh, it's easier to pray that prayer. Yeah. Peter, do you have a thought to that? Well, no, yeah, I just, I, I agree. I, I appreciate what they said that, you know, when I said you sort of have to let them go, I, I kind of mean, you can't change them, but you absolutely can pray for them. Right. And, and I think, while you don't wish ill will on somebody, you do hope for sort of that intercessory move of God to go ahead and, and bring some trouble and hardship, because I don't mm -hmm. know too many people, myself included, that just without some sort of trouble and hardship, uh, are, are, it's just the pathway so often to rooting out that sin. You sort of have to have your hands ripped off of those things that you're gripping on tight, tightly to and maybe making idols out of. And I don't readily give up control of that stuff unless there's some measure of hardship that forces sort of a stripping away of all of it. Right. And, you know, it, it is biblical to pray that way. If you remember in 1 Corinthians is at 5, the guy that was sleeping with his stepmother, Paul says, I've decided to hand such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Meaning, I think what that means is kick him out of the church, get him out into Satan's realm, and may uh, God allow Satan to do whatever he's going to do to wake this guy up to bring him back to Christ. So in the New Testament, they did this kind of thing. All right, here's... Oh, go ahead. Maybe you guys don't have this problem. Is that when I deeply love somebody, like one of my children, or a relative, or somebody in the church, and I see them going down that wrong path, it's not an easy thing for me to give them over to the Lord. I usually want to tell the Lord what I think needs to happen. And <laughs> so long as my prayers keep telling the Lord what he needs to do to get them straightened out, uh, usually it doesn't work very well. It's when I finally love them enough to keep praying and to be concerned, but to give up in the sense that I can't change them, only the Lord can. Mm-hmm. When I get out of the way, it's usually when I see the Lord move. Mm-hmm. All right, a couple couple passages out of John I want to ask you guys about. Here's one. Tell me what image you see in your mind when you hear this verse. This is out of John chapter 10. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Do you see a bunch of people trying to grab him? He's flailing around trying to get away. Tell me what you see. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't think you ever got a hand on I mean, I guess... Yeah, I, I just see, see him sort of like just can't be bothered and being able to walk through it. I, I guess I know that's an interesting um, picture that you're presenting there, Bill. I, I uh, It sounds like there's such an anger to sort of rip him down, and he sort of somehow is able to pass through all of that kind of unscathed. That maybe I'm wrong, a wrong picture. I'd be curious what the other guys think. Well, I, I think, too, Bill, there's a second passage just like that where they're about to throw Jesus over the hill mm-hmm. and he yep. and he passes he passes through their midst right which i i think is probably supernatural that it wasn't his hour to die yet so god just uh, i don't know if he put blinders on the people or whatever but Jesus just walked out of there so so was he able to do a lot of use a lot of supernatural power um I mean, only the power that he used came from the father right so the father might have been right. saying i'll help you slip through this crowd right I well, it so. was the father yeah. watching over him. Yeah. Okay. You know, this is not a good power. example, but let me give you a yeah. bad let me give you a bad example. It, we all grew up with Superman, and we we love the Superman movies. Uh, nobody could hurt Superman. He could walk through any crowd. Nobody could really touch him until Superman was willing to give himself over to Kryptonite. <laughs> if you think of the same way, people really couldn't touch Jesus in the sense of dissuading him from what he was doing or stopping him until he reached that point where the father says the time is now and then Jesus let go of everything and allowed them to beat him mock him and crucify him all right i'm going to take a little break and i do want to hear your questions 877-93 faith and when we come back i want you guys to chew on this passage john 14:12 verily uh truly i i tell you uh whoever believes in me will do the works i have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Do you see people doing greater things than Jesus? We'll be back in a minute.
at 5 on Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. Guide Talk is happening. Let me know what your question might be. 877-93-FAITH. Peter Kapsner, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish are my power panel today. So right before break, gentlemen, I gave you John 14, 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Have you uh, heard about people doing greater things than Jesus? <laughs> well, you know, if, if I here's the here's my thought on that, Bill. He never defined what those things were going to be, so oh, we're going to guess now. We're going to guess. <laughs> and, of course. And, and, I, and, and here's a guess that I've read somewhere. I think. Um, when Jesus left the planet, there were, I don't know, maybe 500 believers who saw him rise from, you know, who saw him after the resurrection. And so it was a tiny group of believers that he left on earth. But then through the apostles and the early church, it spread all over the place. So perhaps that is what he meant when he said, okay. greater works than these will you do. I like that. Let me follow up with that thought you just had. Tom Brock, because you think of these tiny group of believers, and I think they were called the way, weren't they? Uh-huh. Yes. They were probably not uh, terribly well-funded, and they were small, but yeah. wow, look at the impact they had. Uh-huh. Amen. Yep. <laughs> so you don't need a lot of money to spread the gospel. That's so true. Well, I, you know, I'm, this summer I have the privilege of teaching, if Kabona uh, virus lets me, at a church in southern Ohio nine lessons, and they're an hour each. One of the lessons, topic, where's the power? Why don't we see this power today? Why aren't we doing greater things than Jesus did? <laughs> For what it's worth, I've spent three months struggling with this every day, looking at Scripture, reading, whatever. Here's the little bit of a conclusion I came with. Most often in the uh, translation, like of John 14, uh, where he talks about these things, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you is usually plural. It should say you all for most of us, because we have a tendency to think of this singularly like, hey, I should be able to do greater things. But when, like as Tom talked earlier, when the church worked together, even though they had no resources, they had no inherent power, the power flowed through them because they were a group. Think about the local church for a minute in America. Now, I know I've had occasions where people are dying of cancer. and We bring the whole church together for one or two prayer meetings. I wonder how long these people prayed in the New Testament and how often they came together to do that. And so I think that the group praying, the group working miracles, the group doing greater things is there. But oftentimes we don't practice much of it here in America. That's why I love going overseas. Mm -hmm. I see it there. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, uh, Tom. I mean, it's a little bit of a departure from the idea of doing greater works. But what I appreciate about what you said um, is that the, it is a plural you in the in the New Testament. And I think in our individualized culture, where the primary reason why people end up choosing a church home is because of something maybe they were looking for. They might have had some sort of list of characteristics a church needed to have. Maybe it was uh, preaching the word and, and preaching from the scriptures faithfully. Maybe it's something about a children's program. Maybe it's something about a small group or an affinity group of some kind. There's any number of reasons why individuals will choose churches and what gets tricky then is that those individuals all come together and have to try to form a body. Uh, and, and that's not easy when the reason why you have been formed together is because of a bunch of individualized choices. And that's so different than the New Testament community. It's so much so I can barely get my head around it, 
you know, what would it be like to be baptized by one spirit that you're all drinking together, to use the language of the text, into one body, and and the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you, not as an individual, yes, as an individual, but in you as a temple of the Spirit. And when you think about it, maybe 100 people, 50 people, 200 people, whatever it might be, and dwelled in the Spirit in that way, what, what powers and possibilities could be present in the midst of those kinds of people? It's such a different question, but to your point, Tom, when you go overseas, people tend to live a little bit more in community kinds of settings, or they see themselves as people in community rather than disconnected individuals. And something happens in the midst of, the, of those kind of situations that I think can manifest God's power in a unique way. Good word. I think we need to we need to build into our church. You know, you you only have everybody together once a week, and that's in your Sunday morning worship service. And so we need to give God an opportunity or room to do miraculous works that Jesus is talking about there. I mean, we uh, some churches uh, at the end of every service say, if you need prayer for anything, come up, you'll get prayer. If you need the anointing with oil for healing, come up after the service. I like that. But there are other churches, they never anoint with oil. You know, they yeah. never offer prayer to everybody coming. So I, I think we need to... I, I, I could tell stories of wonderful things that happened because people came up after the service for prayer. Miraculous stuff happened. And um, I feel bad when churches don't even offer that. Yeah. Well, think about it for a minute. With the coronavirus, we have governors telling churches that their gathering is non-essential. I mean, think about that for a second. You know, and I'm not just talking about the virus. But when we have a society telling us that the gathering of Christians is not essential, and yet the New Testament emphasizes it is essential, um, regardless of the virus issue altogether, it tells us we're rad. And most Christians just simply comply. Now, there are people beginning to step up and say enough is enough or this isn't going to work. But the point is, I'm not sure how many Christians really come to grips with the fact that being together as the church, worshiping together, doing the miraculous things together is essential for not only the church, yeah. but for the community and the world. And, you know, I, I got to say it again. I got, I, I, go ahead, Peter. No, no, Tom, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, let me say it again. I was just talking uh, half an hour ago to a, a pastor friend of mine in North Carolina, where all the, um, you know, there's no elective surgery going on, and all the abortion clinics are closed. Not in Minnesota. In Minnesota, elective surgery has been banned through this thing. But the abortion clinics have been kept open. That is so evil. And I, I saw a cartoon that said, sign of the times, churches are closed, but the abortion clinics are open. Just showing you how upside down our values have become. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I, and, and I think when we can't meet together like that, and going back to some of the, the topics at the top of this hour, when we are talking a little bit about being set apart and holy as a people— it's it's difficult to manifest those things that are part of God's kingdom unless you're living life together. I mean, the, the Bible is pretty clear that what God's kingdom sort of pulsates with is love, and love requires object. It requires relationship and relationality, and, and they'll know that we are Christians by our love. I, I would love to walk into a church building. Again, it doesn't have to be more than 50 other people. It could be 100. It could be 5,000. And, and if somebody walked in alongside of me that had never walked into the church— that they would marvel at what they saw, that they would marvel at believers um, 
laughing and experiencing joy with one another and freedom, having you know a fun together, uh, clearly having reverence for God together, and uh, and just you know some sort of big holy kingdom party where it just is unlike anything that you see in the world, and and it's because people have a genuine fondness for each other that is is part of God's love, and and from that fondness they reach out and they begin to serve each other and and they look out for each other's needs. That that kind of community really would demonstrate, I think, God's kingdom in this world in in the way that it's supposed to be, and be pretty compelling, I think, to so many other people. But going back to something we said earlier, when when we gather together as individuals who have maybe shopped our way into a church, it's a lot easier to descend into sort of bickering and strife, and well, they're not doing things the way that I want to do it, and then pretty soon power plays come into play or some gossip and stuff. And I'm sure you guys both know as long-term pastors how often, unfortunately, those things begin to manifest among believers, things like gossip and strife and, and division. Uh, there's, there's, it's, it's a tricky thing to live together as the body of Christ, and, and it starts <laughs> and ends with love together in that, in that place. Mm-hmm. Let, yeah. me, let me ask you this. When you talk about prayer with people, you've been doing this for a long time, do you occasionally run across someone that says, well, I never pray for myself? As if, as if that would be something you would never want to do. What is your response to that? Well, I begin by thinking that's stupid, but I don't say that. Uh, and then I try to show them, uh, I usually have an outline of scripture verses that I'll say to them, let's take a look at these. Jesus is inviting you to bring your needs before him. Why aren't you bringing your needs? Why are you disobeying Jesus? And I find that when I can put it in the realm of this person, Jesus usually wins. And, you know, to me, it just, and I could be wrong, but when somebody says something like that, I think maybe a false humility is going on. I'm so humble. I don't pray for myself. I just pray for other people. Or or another variation of that is, I I don't do that because God is busy. I don't want to bother him with my small problems. No, listen. We're supposed to bother him with our small problems. I mean, if I lose my keys, I pray for it, you know? And, <laughs> yeah, and you too. A, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from our father. That means little stuff matters to him. So I, I don't think we should be super spiritual. Of course, don't spend all your time praying for you. That's the opposite extreme. But spend healthy time praying for the world, your family, your friends, and for yourself, because that's not a sin. Great. Well, when you think about it, who is the biggest problem in our life? We are. <laughs> We're our own big problem. <laughs> right. And I've got to keep talking to the Lord to deal with that, because otherwise I create problems for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. I, I love that. It, I've heard that before many times where it's almost like I don't feel worthy or I don't know if I've seen it as a false humility as maybe a, a more of an uninformed perspective uh, where they're just a little bit biblically illiterate and i don't mean that in a mean way at all just Uh you just they don't understand what scripture teaches but it is interesting how if i look at the body of scripture it seems that roughly 90 percent of what the bible teaches about prayer is about praying to worship god and about 10 percent is petitionary and is it safe to say that we've kind of flipped those two yeah, I think that is probably safe to say. If you read the Psalms, 
it's just all this prayer and praise toward God. Yes, there are personal requests. You know, David says, you know, save me from my enemies, and that's all in there. But so much of it is is uh, praising the Lord in prayer. Well, I am not sure that many of us have done a very good job teaching that, Bill. We haven't done a good job teaching people how to use prayer as a way to give praise and thanks to the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Most of us try to get people to move into prayer for a family need, a disease, loss of a job, something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that 10% suddenly becomes 50%, and then it becomes 75%. And it's very hard to focus on Jesus when you're so concerned about your own need. That's why we need to also pray with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed by the number of times that I will have prayed uh, something for me or my life. And then that whatever that is manifests itself in a really positive way. And I don't even turn around and think to then say, you know, thanks be to God, even in the least, you know, and just sort of move on with my day. So, yeah, I mean, I fall whatever those stats were you read, Bill, I, I uh, let's just say that I can identify with them. Yeah, I, I think when you learn about prayer, you're thinking, well, how can I petition God on behalf of things that I would like in my life? That seems yeah, to be the sure. standard response. Isn't that what prayer is for? And then the more you study scripture, the more you realize most of what we're taught in scripture about prayer is to worship God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, it's, it's, the, go ahead, Peter. Yeah. I just was going to say, it's, I mean, when, when I have a need in life that, that is driving me, it, it's pretty obvious to take it to God, but then, you know, on the flip side, how, I, you know, somewhat embarrassing, I suppose it is that uh, you don't wake up in your day just thinking and, and, and looking at the world through the lens of thankfulness and gratefulness or just even worshiping God, that you would do that in an unprompted way, not because anything happened. It just is kind of part of how you're viewing the world. That's a, that's a, that's a different reality that I think I'm guessing many of us don't tap into as often as we'd like. All right, let me take a little break. Guy Talk is... Uh... Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Capture. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have the guys for Guy Talk. I always enjoy this. This is such a lively hour, and I appreciate Peter Kapsner, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish. Justin's not with us today, but that's we'll get him next week. All right. Um, I was thinking about the idea that we are intentionally created by God in his image. God made us in his own image. How do you guys wrap your arms around that one? Well, I think it's one of the most significant teachings in the Bible. And the reason I say that is uh, a couple of years ago, I had a confirmation class of five girls. These are 12 and 13 years old. And I think what stunned me uh, over that year, there were no boys in there, just the girls, is how much they would open up and talk about their own self-image and how they were letting themselves be defined by the boys in their class or by some older you know, boy or girl along the way. And I really spent a lot of time teaching about your identity. Who are you in Jesus Christ? And by the end of that year, uh, they were different girls. And I'm thankful Mm. for that. But the point is, talk enough about it that we are literally created in his image. 
And he wants to reflect himself through us in the way we think, talk, act, and behave in everything we do. And I want to help more and more, especially young people, do that because the devil sure is not fair to them. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, and you know, I don't know that the Bible ever defines what it means that we're made in God's image. And I'm guessing, I could be wrong on this, but I'm guessing people in the last 2,000 years, probably a bunch of them thought that meant that God has a body like we have a body. I'm guessing that's what some people, and I, I don't think that's right, but because it's never super clear, I mean, I remember learning that God has, we have mind, will, and emotions, just like God has a mind, will, and emotions, and that's the way in which we bear the image of God. And that sounds good to me, but I don't know any clear verse on this. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Tom. I mean, I think people have had some different ideas about what it might mean, and I think we we kind of just default to the to what you just described of mind, will, emotions. But I think that there's quite a bit more into that idea of of uh, the image of God or bearing God's image. There's something about we are the vis- we're, we're meant to be God's visible ambassadors and manifestations on earth in some way that. Um, with a mission and a call related to it. But I, I agree. I think anything that we would say would resist any kind of certainty because the Bible is unclear itself on some levels about what it might mean. Nicely nicely stated, Peter. Um, let's talk about how faith uh, makes a person right with God. I know there's oftentimes I get emails from listeners that, that want to believe they've taken the step, they've made a commitment yet they have this uncertainty. And is that just uh, not understanding what God teaches? Or explain again how it works where uh, faith is making a person right with God. Yeah, I think um, my best shot at that one, Bill, is uh, the idea that faith doesn't resolve the uncertainty. Um, and, And faith means to lean into and trust in the midst of uh, an entire world and an ever unfolding future that that is filled with variables that you can't control. And uh, I don't want to go too deeply into this, but it, it talks about in Genesis one that when the earth was formless and void, uh, the Hebrew phrase there is is tohu vavohu, and and it literally means the earth is is an unfolding and ever unfolding chaos. And and in the midst of that chaos, God brings His light into it to start bringing order and and a way of life that is still filled with peace and shalom and all of that. So, so I say that, Bill, is that I think for most of us, well, all of us, in fact, nobody knows the future. The next day is not promised to any of us. And I think when we're honest with ourselves, the future is always a bit of uncertain chaos. And so the move that we make in the midst of that is to trust in the midst of the chaos. And, and that doesn't re- relieve the uncertainty of the future. It doesn't relieve the uncertainty we sometimes feel of, gosh, I wonder if I did it well enough. But, but faith makes us right with God because his invitation is always, you lean fully into me as we walk out the future together, and I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, I will give you wisdom and discernment and clarity every step of the way. I'll be your shepherd. Like all of that language, when we talk about life moving into an uncertain future, where faith makes us right is not trying to depart from God and do then the future on our own and try to take control of everything lean into our money, lean into our resumes, lean into our relationships, all of that, where faith makes us right with God is he's like, yep, you're leaning into me now. That is the way that this is meant to be. And and we're going to do this whole dance of life together, regardless of what comes. Uncertainty, certainty, it doesn't matter. And and so 
I, I always sympathize with people because they're like, gosh, I don't know if I believe hard enough, right? You know, and, mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I shouldn't have any doubt. And I, the Bible doesn't ask us not to have doubt. The, the, the Bible asks us to go with God, go to God with our doubt and lean into him, um, not with our understanding, but with our trust in the midst of it all. Okay, now, I'm gonna, hey, you know, I like what Peter ahead, said. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you, uh, you'll get an idea how old I am. When I was in elementary school, everybody, every guy at least, brought a bag of marbles to school. And during <laughs> recess, we'd shoot marbles. And you're always trying to get that cat eye marble, which was the big one. You know, and so you'd, you'd play this game. Well, I was terrible. I was terrible at that. But my best friend, Lynn Stapleton, who's now a pastor in Kentucky, Tennessee rather, uh, was very good. And it reached a point where I would come to school and I would simply hand him my marbles. <laughs> I wasn't going to shoot anymore. I gave them to him because he'd win and then he'd give me back more than I came with. And I, I see faith as the same thing. Faith is not how much of it I've got. It's giving my bag of marbles over to Jesus. Yeah. It's giving everything I have, my, my thoughts, my life, my family, my future, my money. I just put it in your hands, Jesus. You're the one that's got to make it work. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. But I can't pull it off. My faith is mm-hmm. you. And I always told people, biblical faith is not faith in faith. Biblical faith must always have an object. And that object is the person of Jesus. We're putting our mm-hmm. confidence in him, not in anything else. He will do what's yeah. best. Yeah. I, I think, Tom, I, that you, you said what I was going to say, too. My faith is not in my faith because my faith is weak. It goes up and down. What <laughs> saves me is what my faith is in. And, and yes. like here's a here's a man who's walking along the riverside and he wants to get to the other side. There's a plank going across the river, and he doesn't see it, but there's there's cracks underneath the board. But he's got strong faith. He bounces out on this thing. It cracks halfway across. He drowns. All right. Another man comes walking along the stream. Here's a second plank across the the water. This plank is very firm, no cracks. But this man doesn't know that so he kind of puts his foot on it and he tests it a little bit and with a lot of fear and trembling he makes it all the way across to the other side his faith wasn't so great but what his faith was in was great so he was safe i mean people have strong faith in buddha or the new age movement or muhammad or whatever you can have strong faith but if your faith is in an object that's invalid you're going to die but if you have even weak faith in a proper, solid object, Jesus, you're going to live. So, mm. yeah, our, our faith is not, you know, we're, you know, the Apostle Paul and then later Luther were, were big on that we're justified. That means we're not guilty. We're declared not guilty by faith. And But my faith is not what saves me. What my faith is in, Jesus on the cross, is what saves yeah. and justifies me and declares me not guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Solid stuff. All right, I got one more question, uh, just a few minutes left. When you're convicted of sin, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, the options would be, I'm set free and it's brought me joy, or I feel like I'm left in my sin. Those seem to be the two options. Any thoughts? <laughs> hmm. Well, I think there are some Christians, and that are, this is my, my predicament, some of us feel way too much guilt. I mean, there are days I can't brush my teeth without thinking somehow I've sinned, and there are people in that in that category. But there there are other people who just don't. I mean, they'll say "Oh my God" all the time. They'll do all this stuff, and 
they just don't even seem to think it's wrong. And somewhere you got to be balanced that not all guilt is from God. You can condemn yourself and God is not condemning you. On the other hand, you can have such a dead conscience that you're doing this stuff that's really wrong and you don't even realize it, which is why we all need to be in a church where you're around people who, when you need to hear it, will point out, you know, you shouldn't have said that to your wife or, or whatever. We need to be in community. and We need to be in Scripture. Scripture is the clear guide of what really is and isn't wrong. But, um, yeah, it just kind of depends where you're at on that spectrum, I think. Yeah. All right. That, that pretty much takes us to the end of the hour. That's uh, good timing, guys. <laughs> good to be with you again, Bill. It's good to be with you. Peter, you did a fantastic job last week. Thank you for uh, running the show. And, and gentlemen, thanks for being back for another episode of uh, Guy Talk. It's just, uh, I love being with you guys. It's our pleasure and yeah. privilege. Thanks. Yeah, it, it, you know, it would be lovely to be back together face-to-face if and when those things are appropriate. But it sure is nice to be with the listeners and these guys and you, Bill, and, no, and Rebecca and stuff. Just, you I, know, we, we talked a little bit about... We are the church together, right? And this is a little taste of that. Yeah, we we miss out on the fun of being in the studio together. There's no question about that. For sure, for sure. All right, thanks, guys. Have a good rest of the day. Yeah, you, you too. too. Thanks, you Bill. too. All right, yeah. Coming up next hour, John and Pam Bloom, Deep Thinker Thursday. You know that's always awesome. So we'll take a little break and we'll bring the blooms on. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.